Welcome to the Scaling Japan podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Batino. And on today's episode, we have Ruth Jarman, CEO of Jarman International KK, for her third appearance to talk about selling to the Japanese government. Ruth Business, Jarman International, has continually grown these last 11 years, and they support partners in Japan and overseas with their marketing and business development needs. Ruth also sits on the board of directors as an outside director for Kadokawa and Fujibo Holdings. Yes. I also recommend you check out our other two episodes where we talk about proposals, what governments look at in evaluating contracts, and more. But in today's episode, we will cover some of the challenging situations you may experience and how to handle them. So I'm really glad to have you for a third round. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here, Tyson. And how was the response for your first two appearances? It was really good. I, I didn't realize that your podcast was so popular. <laughs> <laughs> We got a lot of comments, especially on LinkedIn. And people were saying that they had never heard these kind of things before. And it's coming from basically from the trenches, right? Like somebody exactly. who's done it. And so it's very real life kind of advice. So Yeah, I think when you're trying to go after these bids and things like that, it's nice to know from somebody who's done it, you know, the ins and outs. So I think people liked it. Yeah, and I was thinking to myself too, it's like, how many foreigners I know have actually successfully sold to the Japanese government? And yeah, try to count on my fingers, then it would probably be a maximum two hands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, and I have a little update. So I was just appointed director of Japan Association for Women's Education. In the book,、uh, Stories from the Gemba, I know you, they had a section where they interviewed you, and I've actually、uh, shared that bit with、uh, multiple of my clients. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. So I, I, I did screenshot a couple screenshots and said, please check out the book. And it's a really good book. So I highly、yes. recommend it. Yeah, Japanese women are the, the hidden treasure. The un uncovered treasure of Japan, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of business. So, yeah, that's really important. And yeah, actually, my whole team at Japan Switch was all women.、Yeah. And majority of them were women who are returning to the workforce. Uh huh. And so it was great working with professionals. <laughs> and it helped us actually move much faster, scale the business much faster. Yes. Well, making sure they go home at 5 p.m. without a doubt. <laughs> exactly. Because you know, you know they're still going to get the work done. Yeah, Women are good、so、at that. Just from usually having my experience training, like training early 20 year olds to do the job,、uh -huh. it was like such a relief. <laughs> I was like, they get it. They get it on one <laughs> try. Okay. They get it. Beyond、yes. they get it. Yeah, they're so good. Cool. So、uh, moving back to,、uh, moving back to our topic. <laughs> yeah, moving back to our topic. So. Let's say that you were to get the contract with the government. And in this case, you're helping out a subcontractor who got the contract with the government and you're helping、yes. them fulfill their agreement. But okay, do you have、yes. any tips for establishing good communication with that subcontractor who you're supporting? I might have mentioned it in the LAD podcast, but I really think making sure what the subcontractor has promised to do. Is really important. What you need to do is you get a copy of the contract that the subcontractor has 
finalized with the government agency. So they will usually show that to you. If not, they might show you their part, just their part, maybe not the whole thing, because that would show the whole amount of money in there. Mm. But um, maybe the part that includes whatever you're supposed to do for them, because sometimes the contract that is actually closed with the government is different from what you proposed. What I found out is that after the bid is won, Mm. sometimes there's some small negotiations that happen that can actually affect what you're supposed to do over the next year. So confirming exactly what was finalized and what was finally decided with your subcontractor is absolutely important. Uh, I did not know that. So uh, during the year that you're doing this job, your subcontractor partner, as well as the government office, will be referring to that contract. They're not going to be referring to the proposal you gave at the beginning. They're going to be referring to the contract. So you need to figure out exactly what you are required to do in that contract because the contract just, it's basically the SHIO show and the contract. The SHIO show is what they put out when they issue the bid. That's the Mm. SHIO show. So that's also really important because you have to make sure that you are fulfilling everything in that original SHIO show. But then when the contract is actually signed for exactly specifically what is going to be done, there are negotiable things and non-negotiable things. So can I give one example, just one really small example? Go for it. Like, let's say in the contract, it says you must get at least 50 people to this event in November. Okay. And it turns out that because of the venue, you're not able to do it in November. It's going to happen in January instead of November. That is usually a negotiable point, usually. Something like when it's going to be done is negotiable. But when it comes to a number like 50 people, like a a kind of KPI-ish kind of number, those numbers are often not negotiable. One of the questions that you had sent me that, and I think it fits in perfectly here, is even if it looks like you're not going to make 50 people and it might only be 35 Even if you personally have to pay people to show up at that event, you do it. Because if it's a non-negotiable point of the contract, it'll really put your subcontractor in a difficult place if you don't come through with the numbers or the non-negotiable ones. So you have to make sure which ones would be negotiable, which ones would be non-negotiable. Gotcha. So other than the when, what are some other potential negotiable points? which media you publish in. So my my job is basically we do promotion for all these different places, right? So one of the negotiable things that usually happens is in our proposal, we'll say we'll go for, you know, Lonely Planet or this or whatever. And we'll say different media names. And obviously the, the customer and the subcontractor are going to be like, Lonely Planet? You can get Lonely Planet? Okay, we want Lonely Planet, you know? But what you always try to do is even though it's set that you have to do some big media, then mm. in the contract, it doesn't have to be specifically this specific media, but it would you would need to then justify the reach of this other media that you're choosing and why it's happening and why it wasn't able to be the one that was in the original proposal. So the type, the way that you do it, as long as it gets to the same result, the way that you ch- choose to do it can often be negotiable. And ironically, I'm talking with a friend who is 
making a bid for a government project in the startup realm. When、uh, we were coming up with the bid together, I remembered our previous episodes together on the number, and I was like, "Okay, I'm going to take this very seriously now." Yes, yes, very seriously.、Uh, Because another thing is when you're going for a bid, the government is not dumb, right? So they're going to be able to tell if you're overestimating numbers or if you're kind of fudging with which connections. And when your subcontractor partner actually goes for the presentation, because the people that are left at the end of the bid have to do a real life presentation, whether it's online or in person. And so when your subcontractor goes and presents it to outside, you know, reviewers that have nothing to do with this government, the outside reviewers are usually professionals in that field. They're going to point out. Wait a minute. They're saying they're going to be able to get an article on Lonely Planet. How are you going to do that? How much money are you going to spend? Right? And then the subcontractors put in a very difficult position of saying, "Oh, wait. Let me check." And there is no chance to check. And that really raises the possibility that you will not win the bid. Actually, I do want to. So at least for the startup one, there are some external people who are going to evaluate the proposals. But is that common, or、yeah, they have outside、always. experts? Yes, it's called a yushikisha. Yushikisha. I've been one many times. So,、uh, for instance, I think it's already over, so I can say there's this thing they have every year called the Rainbow Ride, where people can ride bicycles over Rainbow Bridge in Tokyo.、Ah. And it's coming up in November. So they had two companies that they had like winnowed down, and they were the two big companies that were doing the presentation to me as a yushikisha. Me and two other people,、uh, three other people. So we're the ones who rank, and we're the ones who basically decide who gets it. Obviously, the government also has a say in everything, but they really take seriously the outside, unrelated parties that are there to sort of judge the presentation. And you can also ask questions, and you get some information in advance so you can review it. And so you're ready to ask questions because this is taxpayer money, and you don't want them to use it in a, to a wrong place, right? So yes, those outside、uh, advisors that judge the bids should be taken very seriously. And do you have any other tips with communicating with the contractor? So I mentioned about having them show you the actual contract, right? And now we can all use ChatGPT to translate that in English to to really help you understand exactly what you are promising or what they promised to the government. I've had in the past. They promise something that had to do with me without letting me know about the change. That's not a great thing. I actually found out about it four months later, so that's why I know that you always want the subcontractor to show you the contract right away. Because <laughs> I had a situation where four months later I realized, what? Wait, we said they don't do banners on that site, and they're like, no, no, we told them they would do banners, and we're like, uh oh. Having them、um, show you the contract, talking about that very openly, you know, is very good. And then I would also suggest recently there's like off email ways of interacting. So I usually have like a back channel interaction with the main person of my subcontractor. So I'm the CEO of Jarman, the leader of the subcontractor on our project. You know that person and I will have a back channel connection on Facebook, on Facebook Messenger or LinkedIn Messenger. I mean, there's no Messenger, but on LinkedIn through through messaging.、Yeah. So to have a back channel, whether it's text messages on your phone, communication with the person who's in charge on the other side on the subcontractor once you've won is really important. 
because a lot of times you need to talk about money things. You need to talk about uh, when to invoice. You need to talk about the invoice pattern. And to do it on back channel route is kind of like nemawashi in my experience. Mm. So doing it on a back channel route is much less pressure for the person because it's not an official request yet. But you can say, by the way, you know, regarding the payment schedule, uh, would it be possible for us to invoice you blah, 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 this month, this month for this amount, you know, over the year? And then they can say, oh, you know, yeah, it's okay to do it on this month, but could we, you know, make the other one a little bit later next time? And you can do that very easily through a back channel. And then you send the official mail that includes your accountant and includes their accountant and stuff. So it's easier for them to negotiate on their side if it's back channel. So I would say a back channel communication tool between you as the face of your company and them as the face of their or the project manager is really good to have. One of the common challenges I see with my consulting clients is not having any staff internally who can drive marketing strategy and execution to the next level. This really limits the growth trajectory of a company, especially for a leader like you that wants to go from 30 million to 500 million yen a year and does not have the time to spend years learning through trial and error. To solve this problem, I'm launching a marketing agency that can help companies like yours to increase leads and closing rates through SEO, Google Maps, content marketing, and websites that convert. Head over to scalingyourcompany.com and book a free consultation. Let's talk about what your business needs are, where your current strategy is letting you down, and how we can help you see real results with the methods I've successfully implemented at multiple companies myself. Now, back to the episode. And so I think finding out that you're part of the proposal mid-contract is a pretty big uh, mid-project issue. But what are some other mid-project issues and how did you handle it? Okay, well, other, you know, easy ones to remember are when it's very clear, you're not going to be able to do what you promised to do for some outside reason. I mean, COVID gave us a whole bunch of reasons that we were not able to do what we promised in 2019 to do for 2020, right? When it's really clear, okay, here, everybody, this is really important advice. When it's really clear, like when you are pretty sure you are not going to be able to get the 50 people and it's going to be 40 people, even though it's 50 people in the contract, you tell your counterpart through the back channel ASAP. You do not cover that up. You just contact them right away. And you say, uh, this one point for this reason, it looks like I'm not sure if we're going to be able to make it. What should I do? And then the counterpart w- will also have a back channel communication tool with whoever's on the other side. And they'll start negotiating behind the scenes about what to do. I tell you 100% it will work out. It won't work out if you wait to the last minute and you think I will be able to do it and I'm going to make it happen. Whenever there's a sign of trouble, that's when you are as transparent as possible, as honest as possible. And you just say, yeah, this is what happened. So basic golden rule is to be conservative in everything you're offering to do, first of all, like you never want to overpromise. Next golden rule is you want to figure out exactly what you've been promised to do as soon as possible, right when you win the bid. Next golden rule is that if it ever seems like you might not be able to follow through with something that you said, even if it's small, even if it is a negotiable point, you let through your back channel, you let your counterpart know 
what's going on and what's happening, you are as transparent as possible. And can I say one more thing? So when you're transparent with them, your project manager in your company will also be brave to be transparent with you as the CEO. You must create an environment where no one in your company will hide something that's going badly. If somebody hides something that's going badly, it's a, not a nice way to say it, but everybody's kind of screwed in the end. So creating a like an environment of transparency in your company and allowing your people who work for you know they are not going to get in trouble if they're transparent with you and if they're clear about things that we're going to problem solve it together. You are not alone. We're going to figure this out. I got you. I'm going to take care of this for you. I've done that many, many times. And thanks to that, I think that everybody who works for me or with me knows that I'm never going to leave them, you know, standing there by themselves to take the fall for something. For the listeners out there, this point about letting the staff know that it is going to be fine or and being transparent is the most important thing. So it's extremely important for managing Japanese. 100%. And my next question is, uh, how does payments typically work? Like, you know, when do you get paid? How do you get paid? And maybe another one, like at least in B2B, you know, having a Mizuho bank account is really nice. It looks better than having an online bank account. But could you please tell us more about payments? Don't even get me started on this kind of topic because I really, really thought about these things. And I've got a lot of advice from my Japanese counterparts as well. I would say when you have your, you know, company information on your website, you definitely want to have at least like I just got to 1 million yen in my um, capital on the company outline. So you want to have, I mean, Gojiman, you can do it, but I think having 1 million yen is very important there. The address of your company is very important. The bank that's your home bank is important. I mean, it can totally be a city bank, you know, if it's a good bank or like tomato bank in Okayama, which I love, you know, it can be a bank like that is absolutely no problem. You know, as a startup, you know, you're just getting going, being able to show that your home bank is SMBC or Mitsubishi UFJ, and this is where they're going to transfer the money to you. It can be very reassuring to your client. But if you're working in the region and the main regional bank is your main bank, that could even also be very reassuring. So I think that's part of the strategy that you can think about. I've seen cases where it's more for like the startups overseas, but if you don't have a Japanese bank account, you won't even get the deal. That's true. Like that, that's a deal breaker. Well, I mean, I would even take it further than that. If you don't have an on-site rep, like a company that you work with in Japan, a Japanese company, a KK, if you're not involved with them and you're just trying to go in, you know, green straight to get a bid, you're never going to get it. You must have somebody in Japan representing you. So even if it's a shared office, like, you know, the, what is it? They have all those shared offices that you can use, like a virtual office. Mm-hmm. And then you say that our partner is so-and-so Kabushiki Gaisha, and this is where you would transfer the money. I mean, it'll be so much more reassuring for your client. And the only exception I've seen is where it was a local government who actually reached out to this foreign vendor. Yes. That was the only case. It wasn't where they were trying to pitch each city. It's more, uh, they were discovered, so... They're a bit more lenient without, like, they didn't need to have like a KK in Japan. But if yeah, you're you hunting, yeah, if you're hunting, you have to have a KK. If they're hunting, you have to have a connection. So let's say you're a startup in Korea, you want to be friends with Kakao. 
or if you're a startup in the US, you want to be you it would be great if you worked with somehow with Google or Uber or Tesla or something like that. So what you do is you tell your counterpart at Uber or Tesla or whoever, and you say, hey, if you have anything that happens with Japan, let me know because I would like to help with something in Japan. And so that would be another way of getting work in Japan, going through one of those big ones uh, overseas. But yes. uh, going back to the payment thing, can I? The yes. payment thing is very important. So anybody who worries about their uh, P and L or their balance sheet would not want to get paid all at once, right? <laughs> so you don't want to get the full amount for the full year all at once in one month. Usually, you want to break it up, correct? And then usually your subcontractor partner is also not getting it all at once. They're probably getting it broken up. Or they might be getting it all at once at the end of March. So that means that your subcontractor is also thinking about their cash flow. So what I usually do is through the back channel uh, with my counterpart, I'll say, okay, regarding payment, you know, you've already spoken to your accountant, like you looked at your cash flow, you looked at your, your plan for the year, and you try to figure out where would I get this money? Where would it really help me? Like, if you think about it, in order to execute a project, you have a lot of outlays of money. So you try to think, okay, which month of the year during this project is the most outgoing money going to happen? So you need to have money before that in order to be able to pay that stuff. So just basically all based on cash flow, you figure out your best payment schedule. And then through the back channel, you ask your counterpart, would this be possible for you? They come back to you and say, yes, you know, the one in August is possible, but for the next payment, could you wait until the end of February? So usually it's broken up and it runs along the fiscal year for the Japan year. But a lot of us have different fiscal years. So my fiscal year ends at the end of October. So a lot of times I will want to get one good payment end of September. And that's a little fast because a lot of these projects are, are decided in June and July. And then my counterpart might not have any money coming in from that project yet by the end of September, right? So sometimes I'll say, can we issue the invoice in October? And then you can pay us two months later. That's totally fine. So try to be really flexible and really sensitive about payments. You're definitely going to get paid. It's just a matter of when. And you try to figure out strategically for your company. And then also keep in mind that the other, your subcontractor also has to be strategic. Yeah, I want to ask you from, uh, I guess, the, for the subcontractor side, in terms of when they get the contract from the government, based on your experience, like what percent of it do they get the money up front from the government at the end of the contract or in increments? I would say 0% up front. <laughs> I really think that nobody gets money up front here. So for us to say, oh, I need the money at the beginning so that I can get started on my thing, does it really work? Because no one's getting paid up front. And f in fact, I would say, it's just a guess, but more than 50% of the projects get paid at the end of March. Gotcha. So it's like they want it in July and they have to wait all year and they finally get paid at the end of March. We have to be very sensitive to that. So what I try to do is I try to figure out exactly how much money is going out over that project. So with my business, with promotion, in order to get the results that they're expecting, they want the results in like February or March of the following year. And that's when we're doing all our reporting, right, about what we did during the fiscal year. 
So in order to get those results, I have to have a whole bunch of activity before the end of the year, the previous year, before December. So in order to have a whole bunch of activity, you have to pay you know, out. You have to pay for media. You have to pay for influencers. You have to pay. So there's a lot of money going out. So what I usually try to do is get the bulk of the money before the end of the year and then the final little bit the next year in, in March or something. Yeah, but that makes sense, especially from promotion, because promotion costs money. A lot of people, so let's say you're going for projects and you're it's based on the fiscal year and your project from the previous year finished in March and you got the final payment at the end of March or end of April, but you still have the staff that was on that project, okay? You still have a staff person or two or three staff people who were involved in that project, right? And then you think, wait a minute, I would like to go for that RFP again for next year. And that RFP is coming out in May. So you don't know if you're going to win it until July. So basically, until July, you have May, June, July, three months where you would be paying those staff, even though you don't have income. And I feel like a lot of us, especially in startups, would stop paying those staff and say, okay, we don't even know if we're going to win the next project. So here, why don't you go do your other freelance things? But what I would suggest very strongly is keep your staff and keep paying your staff because they will be so ready to help you when the project comes again. And then you also are able to keep the staff who already know it so well. So, yes, it feels like an investment and it feels like so you could ask them to do other stuff like other things in your company. But I would say a lot of people think on a project basis and they're like, well, our project is done. So we'll let these people go and then we'll ask you to help us again if we get the project again next year. Don't do that. Keep them and have them work on other things, because this is how you can really keep good talent in Japan, I think. Yeah, rather than having to reinvent the wheel for each contract. I think when you find really good people, try to keep them as close to you as possible. And I think you gave a, a really good example of how to keep them close. Do you have any uh, other additional tips on understanding the contractor that you're aiding? You gave a really good example about, you know, you got to see the contract as soon as it, but anything else? Yeah, it, like visit them, visit their office, go have lunch with them, go have dinner with them, you know, face-to-face -face meeting you know, now we can do everything remote, but maybe every other meeting could be face-to-face -face in person and then have lunch afterwards. Even if they're in a regional area, especially if they're in a regional area, make the effort to go visit them. You know, send people from your company to go visit them, like staff on the same project, because that would be a great experience for them. They get loyal to the company because they get to go somewhere. So yeah, I think that real interaction with your subcontractor is really, really good. So making that effort, you know, everybody knows in Japan that, you know, making the effort, you know, spending a little extra time to do something that's really nice can be such a great gesture. Oh, and also Nengajos. I know a lot of people probably don't send Nengajos anymore, but I send like probably about 250 Nengajos every year. And I just keep all the meishi I get and I have a Jarman Nengajo that I make and I write a little message on each one. I actually even write the addresses. I don't use labels. 
So I write the addresses. It's usually, I make it with um, Rogiru-san, non-Japanese uh, washi master, Japanese paper master, who's from Kochi, and he makes these beautiful nengajos for me that are made organically from, like, plants around his house. So it's like, it's a meaningful gesture to say thank you for this year and looking forward to the next year and it's so rare now that you can yeah. really, you can stand out by doing this people are so surprised when they receive an ingajo i've definitely noticed the decline in ingajos in the last 12 years yeah yeah so i mean make a sustainable like a handmade paper ningajo or something that would be good and then also i'm a true believer in osebo and go to again, the presents through the mm. year. Uh, or if somebody gave you something like this is a really good example. The other day, I went out to dinner with someone that I work with. It's like a counterpart company. And they paid for the whole dinner. So you, it's very hard to fight there because they're going to force you to let them pay. So what I did is I have another client in Yonezawa that makes this fantastic amazake like frozen treat for the summer. So they, if you look on any uh, website now, there's all these summer gift sets that you can get because it's the uh, Gochugen, Osebo, or Gochugen, I think it's Gochugen season, right? So I sent him a thank you gift to his office and he was really, really grateful. So sending people gifts after they've done something nice for you is also a really, really good way to maintain that relationship. I just did a quick Google search, but the period for Ochugen is late June to July 15th. And I, I usually is... ignore that. Oh. <laughs> I, I usually ignore that and just send gifts when I want to. And people really <laughs> like it. So it doesn't, you, all you would do is you just don't put the label on there that says Ochugen or Osebo. You just make it a gift. Sometimes you just get last minute and you just got to do it. <laughs> Uh, but it, it actually like, it, it worked like I was thinking in our case uh, there's one company that always sent it to us every year and I was like without fail yeah and I'll always remember that I was like oh yeah yeah you know I only realized this like 20 years down the line like after 20 years of working but the manner for when you receive one of those is giving a phone call I did not know that oh I did not know that too but you absolutely are supposed to phone give a phone call to say it arrived and thank you so much you don't have to write a postcard to say thank you. You write a postcard to say thank you when somebody sends you a book or something. Or when somebody treats you to something really nice and you're not going to send a present, you send a little postcard to say thank you and it was very nice to meet you. But for the gift that arrives, you're supposed to call as soon as you get it. So you look at the label on the delivery label and it usually has the person's name and the number. And you call and you say, ah, it can be just very short, like a 10 second call, but you're supposed to call. Oh, that's, I did not know that. <laughs> I didn't know. And I, sometimes I mess up and I, sometimes I, I am not able to do it, but I really try to call. Sometimes companies, they focus so much on trying to get new customers. Yeah. As opposed to just uh, taking care of uh, people you've worked with in the past. Yeah. Excellent. Can I give one more advice about yes. this contractor? If any of us are involved in any international organizations, like some of my core 50 members are members of Tokyo American Club, or I'm a member of the ACCJ, American Chamber of Commerce, or, you know, if you're a member of the French Chamber of Commerce or something, subcontractors, clients love it when you take them to those events as a guest. I highly recommend that. 
because it's something that they would never be able to access on their own. So if you have events at your chamber of commerce or any kind of organization that you're in, ask your subcontractor if they would like to join you. And it really opens their mind to the value that you can offer to Japan because they go and they see all these different kinds of people gathered. It's so exciting, you know? So I would recommend if you're in any kind of international organization, please ask your subcontractor if they would like to go as your guest. It's really good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scaling Japan. In addition to serving as your fine host, I also provide advisory and coaching services to business owners who want to 2x, 5x, and even 10x their business. So stop holding your company and your team and your employees back and let me help you and your company scale. Find more information at scalingyourcompany.com. Now back to the episode. And I think you also mentioned something regarding like seeing the emails of how their contractor works with the client. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? This is once you have a very good trusting relationship with your subcontractor. Oftentimes you will be in CC on mails. And I know a lot of people don't like to be in CC, but when the subcontractor is interacting with the actual counterpart with the client and you're on CC, that is so lucky because you can see the relationship building that's going on between the subcontractor and the client. When you watch that, you can see, are they being really, really polite or are they being very friendly or what is the tone of the conversation or what is the kind of issue? How is the counterpart expressing, you know, maybe not being satisfied with something or being very satisfied with something. So being in CC on interactions between the subcontractor and the client is actually a huge opportunity to understand, you know, the position of the subcontractor and to really be able to have more empathy towards them. Uh, next, I wanted to dive into potentially uh, what are some additional challenging situations you've dealt with in your time? So this is a very difficult topic because I think that anyone in a small company, any small company CEO without that big name brand behind you is going to be teased and bullied. I think it's probably really common whether you're a foreigner or not a foreigner. But I think that in the foreigner case, a lot of times we don't pick up the signals that it's starting. A lot of times we don't notice or we just take you know, for face value, what the person is saying, but there's actually a whole bunch of like magma building up under the volcano and we're not really picking it up. So I noticed in my experience, it's usually like an explosion. It's not gradual. It's usually an explosion of, you know, how could you do this? And this is wrong. And it's usually in a mail, like an email or something. It's not face to face. And I feel like, That is oftentimes when I will actually cut the tie. Like it's only happened to me three times in the whole time I've been here. So let's say 35 years. I would say in that situation, you know, not being able to read the situation well, yes, that's my bad. I I didn't read it right. But there's still no reason to explode. And if we've had a relationship for a while, They should understand that whatever I've been doing wrong is coming from a good place. I'm trying. I'm trying to do it. So it means that they're also very much disrespecting you by blowing up at you like that. It also means they don't understand you. 
And if you've been working together for a while and they still don't understand you and they still don't understand your value add, maybe they're not the right person to work with. So I've had that happen three times. And then other times is more, I've been sort of power harassed, disrespected, rudeness. And I can handle rudeness to myself, but when it starts, I see rudeness to people that I that work for me, like my staff. You know, that's where I pretty much draw the line. And that's when I start to get, I feel a little angry, but then I start to get smart. And then when I start to get smart, I start to figure out ways to step back out of that project without them realizing I'm doing it. So step back out of it and have them say, oh, you know, there's some reason why we couldn't, or maybe the estimate we give them is way too high. And I know that they're not going to accept that. And that's another, you know, graceful way to step back out of something. So I try to not burn any bridges. And I I try to step out of something, whether it's out of self-protection or protecting somebody that works for me or reputation, things like that. Also, like the way your staff, how they refer to you Mm -hmm. in front of Yes. The client yes. is also really important. But yeah. can you tell us more about that? Yes. So for all of us internationals here working in Japan, we get called our first name all the time. Like I get called Lucy all the time. Whereas it's so somebody who's working under me in the company will be called Suzuki-san. And suddenly I will be Lucy you know, <laughs> in front of the customer. And I'm like, no, I am Jaman-san or Jaman-shacho, right? Like, or Lucy Shacho is also okay, but Lucy is my first name. That's not my last name. So in a mail or something, anytime we are in front of the client, I always remind my staff to call me either Lucy Sun or Jaman Sun or Jaman Shacho or Shacho is okay. Because, you know, they need to remember that I'm the Shacho and so does the client. So, you know, in the end, the person taking all the responsibility is moi. So I would like to be established as the person who's taking responsibility from the get-go so that, you know, it actually helps my staff if they establish me that way. So the other day, this is a really good, really good example. We had a new client that we're working with. One of our Japanese staff was writing a perfect email about thank you for the meeting that we had the other day. It was really good. And then she signed it and she said her last name, let's say it was Suzuki, And then the two of us that were also in the meeting, both of us first name as in we're in CC. So, you know, it's her last name and then other name and other name. So I wrote her back and I said, whenever you are interacting with a client, you need to use our last name, not our first name. And she was like, she didn't, it didn't even occur to her. She was like, so, 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 that Nagelman does I like that, you know? All of us internationals have to remember, this is not coming from a bad place. People are not disrespecting you on purpose. They just feel very comfortable with you. So they're calling you by the first name. But towards a client, you need to, I mean, it's a hard word, but you need to demand. You need to demand that they put San on there or Shacho or last name. In my experience as well, it, it does make a huge difference. When we were dealing with the clients, the staff members, I just used the term Bucho because that was probably the easiest. Yeah, Bucho is uh, good. When we're dealing, just just call me Bucho. And I find that if you just do that from the beginning, your communication with the client is just going to go so much smoother. They're not going to be confused about who, who to talk to, who makes right. the decision. Right, exactly. But yeah. if you don't do that, they're going to start looking at the Japanese staff and that makes your Japanese staff uncomfortable. Yeah, 
Exactly. Because your Japanese staff can't tell tell them like you're wrong. Like why are you looking at me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and you'll just save yourself a whole lot of headache, and uh, you just start off on a much higher note. Reduces a lot of that confusion on both sides. Yes. How can you avoid being taken advantage of? Well, I mean, sometimes being taken advantage of can be a strategy. So sometimes you you just in your own heart and in your mind you figure out where your line in the sand is, right? Sometimes being taken advantage of can be extremely strategic, but you have to know your worth. So this is an excellent example. So I do a lot of speeches all over Japan, and this huge company approached me the other day to do a series of, series of speeches because they've made some kind of contract with every single locality in Japan, and so that's a huge scale. That's a wow. obvious scalable situation, right? And so. We had a meeting, and they said, "How much do you charge for a speech?" And I said, "Yonju Mayan," because I don't want to do a speech for any less than that. Because that's four hundred thousand yen, about four thousand bucks, which that's inexpensive from my point of view. Like I've written books and things, right? So separate from travel cost, four hundred thousand yen for ninety-minute speech, and I really prepare hard. And I mean, it's I put a lot of work into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like. <sighs> I don't know, you know, and he says we usually pay a hundred thousand yen. So he's thinking I'm gonna think, oh, but they have relations with four hundred and seventy localities around Japan. So Jumayan, hundred thousand yen times four hundred and seventy—that's a lot of money. So maybe she'll do it based on that. But no, 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 no. That's taking advantage, right? And also, they're a big name company, so he's probably thinking, ah,、uh, she can put it on her, you know, companies that she works with, you know, list or whatever. That's where I draw the line in the sand, and I said, well, you know, I have a big network, and I know a lot of people that are just starting out doing speeches, and they would be more than happy to do a speech for Jumayan with travel separate and go to all these places and be able to do it. So I'm happy to. You know, introduce somebody else. So again, I did it where you're not burning a bridge, you're not saying no, you're gracefully stepping back, and you're saying, "Well, maybe I can't do it, but somebody else might be able to." And I'm happy to introduce a bunch of people. And here's my core fifty group. You know, he was happy with that, but in his brain, it got inserted in his data bank that if they want me, it's expensive. If they want to have like one person go to every single locality, that it it wouldn't be as expensive, but it probably wouldn't be me. So it still sales for my company as a whole. I felt a little bit like, did he do his research in advance? You know, and he said, "Oh, that's top level. That's really expensive." I'm like, no, you know, a lot of my friends they charge eight hundred thousand yen per speech. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, I mean, you just have to stand your ground at certain points, and then maybe flip it so you can use it as a marketing opportunity for your company. That's what I did. You, it's called in Japanese gyaku egyo. When somebody's coming to try to sell you something or make you do something, you figure out a way to switch it up, and you're actually selling to them. <laughs> nice. I, I do that all the time. <laughs> yep, selling back to the seller. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, I, I love it, and yeah, I, I agree as well. I think that's a big point that I think you've mentioned a couple of times:、uh, knowing your worth. Yes. But they'll also respect you as well、uh, after that moment. Exactly. So, is there maybe anything else you would like to share with the audience? Yeah, I would like everyone to really know their worth because each person listening to this—if you're listening to this in English—that means you can 
you can speak English and maybe you're non-Japanese or maybe you are Japanese, but everyone listening to this podcast has so much worth and is so necessary for Japan. Like Japan needs us so badly. So when you think about your worth, I'm sure that everybody knows their worth in their heart, but then how do you express that? How do you put that into words? How do you make it clear to the Japanese counterpart what your worth is? That's where the challenge is. So I find that, you know, going to events, you know, sending the nengajos, making sure that your profile on LinkedIn is like totally full, making sure you have an excellent Japanese profile somewhere on the web. So that if somebody Googled your name, something would come up that says, this is what I am. These are the links to my social media. Like, for instance, with my group of Core 50, if you type in one of the Core 50's names, pretty much for sure, if you type it in in Japanese, the Jarman International Core 50 profile comes up at the top of the search results because so many people do not have good Japanese profiles out in the open on the web. So everybody who's listening to this, to help people understand your worth and know your value and know what you can contribute, make sure that you have your profile out in the open and that it's also in Japanese. So when a Japanese person does due diligence and uh, searches your name, that something good is going to pop up. And also, I think it's more of something recent, but actually on LinkedIn now, you have the option to make your profile in both English and Japanese. Good. So based on the language setting of the person, they'll show the appropriate profile. Uh Uh-huh. That's good. So I recommend uh, I've created minds in both languages as well. Yeah, that's really good. That's good. That's smart. Excellent. So uh, I definitely do want to get you in the future to talk about empowering Japanese women to scale your business. Yeah, to scale your business in Japan. Uh, I've done it, but there's definitely a lot I could learn from you as well. I would say... I guess the thing that I've had a bit of success in is turning my employees into creators from task oriented. So they were very much focused on tasks and now they are actually project managers. And how do you do that? It's not easy. I actually know a lot of business owners struggling with that. Yes. So I think this will be a very popular topic. I would love to talk about that. And I, I would actually like to have one of my, the ladies who works for me talk about that too. She would be very, very good and helpful to everyone, I think. Mm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So uh, look forward to uh, round four. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Tyson. Thank you, Ruth.